Shrink Wrap Radio number 860. Alan Sussman, M.D., discussing his book, Saving the Art of Medicine. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrink Wrap Radio. It's Shrink Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Alan Sussman, MD, author of the new book, Saving the Art of Medicine, in which he argues that medicine should be more than just the treatment of a diseased or broken body part. Rather, physicians must respect the complex interrelationships of mind, body, and spirit, seeking always to connect the part to the whole. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Alan Sussman, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Well, thank you, David, for having me. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, me too. And uh, really glad to have you here. And we're going to be discussing your book, The Art of Medicine. And uh, that's such an intriguing title. So uh, I can't wait to jump into it a bit. Great. Yes. No, no, I think there's a lot of saving that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, saving the art. It's saving the art of medicine. I've got the title wrong. The complete title is saving the art of medicine. I'm glad you you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. No, in fact, uh, also the subtitle "Observations of a Practitioner" has some meaning to it too. Double yeah. meaning. Yes. Yes. Okay. So um, it seems like you had a bit of a wake up call in terms of a more humanistic or holistic approach to medicine than you started with? Yes, absolutely. I, uh, uh, when I was growing up, I was probably be called a nerd. Uh, (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I was, uh, I was, I was very, very academic, uh, had very high, IQ uh, in terms of mathematics and science. And I thought all the answers to life was in science and math. Yeah, Um, yeah, I can understand that. Now, we're going to be discussing a a major change uh, that partly will explain that in a bit. But I'm wondering, what was the catalyst? Was there, I'm wondering if there was anything, say, in your childhood or, or your disposition, despite the way you described yourself, that might have foreshadowed this potential humanistic leaning. Well, it, it was uh, the humanistic part gradually grew, but there was a general change in my 
thought processes about what life was all about and that science was not the whole answer. Uh, goes all the way back to high school where I ended up on a yin-yang situation of, uh, on one hand, I was very Freudian and was reading everything that Freud had ever mm -hmm. written. Yeah. So all the answers were there. Wow. And then I got very involved in D.H. Lawrence. And the interesting thing is, is that D.H. Lawrence wrote a book about Freud, where he was very vindictive about about Freud and oh. Freud was Freud was in the mind, and and D. H. Lawrence was in the gut. Yeah, wow, that's interesting. I did not know that bit of that bit of uh, Freudian history. That's fascinating. Uh, and so, D. H. What you read in D. H. Lawrence moved you away from the idea that. Uh, that Freud had understood everything about life. Right, right. Or that there was another part to life. And the other part yeah. of life is, is is more internal, cannot necessarily be expressed in words, but is more in a, a whole sense of one's being. Uh, and so that I, there was the beginning of that inkling there. Interesting. It didn't, so, it didn't so, switch. Yeah, I, I had a sense that that something maybe had started earlier in your life to uh, foreshadow this. And uh, we're just lucky you didn't go off and join the, the French Foreign Legion. Yeah, <laughs> I could have done that. Oh, no, no. I also went in other directions, too. Yeah. I, uh, I got involved in a, a lot of ESP work, too, in uh, college. Uh-huh. Uh, PTSD, did you say? Uh, ESP. Extrasensory perception. Oh, ESP. Yes, I also uh, that that's been been a, was an interest of mine for some time, and it hasn't totally gone away. I must say. Um, so I'm I'm not sure if the uh, of our age difference, but psychology and even large parts of our culture made a shift in that direction, I would say, in the 60s and 70s. That's me. Yeah, that's you too? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that had a, had a big impact on me and, and I think on, on, a, on a whole subculture, you know, due to the advent of, of uh, a combination of factors, you know, the, uh, the Vietnam War and the rebellion against the war, the the collapse of the trust of authority and in institutions, the uh, the sense that maybe we could reinvent ourselves, the advent of, of psychedelics, uh, and all of those things made this uh, this wonderful witch's brew, if you will. <laughs> yes, yes, or as I like to say, is it confused things? Yeah, yeah. So. Um, so in your book, you hearken back to earlier times when physicians spent more time with their patients and listened more deeply. Uh, take us through that a bit. Okay. Well, if we go all, all the way back, we say, what was medicine at the beginning? Yeah. Medicine probably came from shamanism. 
and in shamanism you have I'm glad very- I'm glad to hear you say that because I've said that on my show many times not not about medicines as much as about psychology in general and and certainly clinical psychology quotes the healing arts but go ahead <laughs> yes 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 so anyway it's a very as you know it's a very strong ritualistic practice in which there is a very strong bonding between the practitioner and the patient right uh, and a belief system that's very closely aligned or be, or becomes aligned during that process and uh, my belief is that is therapeutic uh, yeah and, i agree <laughs> and, and it was also at a, a very intense level which is hard to replicate in the modern era but can at least be considered as an element in good good health care yeah yeah um and so then then moving it forward in time uh uh what happened <laughs> well um I, you know the when you look at the greek the greek times uh and you talk about hippocrates and there was still the hippocratic oath that we have uh the Hippoc- hippocrates said uh that um that that he's more interested in knowing who the patient is of the disease than the disease itself. It was a time of true observation yeah. uh, in, terms of, in terms of treatment and diagnosis at that time. Because if you look at the underlying reasoning that was used for why, why diseases happen, they didn't get it right. But but that doesn't mean that they couldn't achieve a lot through that. And so it wasn't until you got to the uh, uh, the Renaissance, you now had uh, looking more at the body. Uh, it wasn't until uh, almost the 15th, 16th century that you started even looking at the body uh, of human beings. You were only looking at animals beforehand. You couldn't look at human cadavers. So eventually you started a uh, approaching what was going on um, with the human being rather than a more fanciful way of looking at it. Uh, and then, of course, it's the 19th century that everything really broke through, at which time modern science really came to bear. Uh, and, uh, and, and we started particularizing. And this is the big point that I like to make in my book is, is that science is wonderful, we wouldn't be talking right now without it. Yeah, but 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 science is very particular in what it does. So it's doing very little chunks of what it's trying to say, and then we have to interpret it. And and that's and that has a has an importance. But what I feel right now, it's become overly important. Yeah, the chunks have gotten smaller and smaller in terms of uh, specialization. And, uh, you know, and all the papers that are written that are so specialized that they represent just like a, a little tiny sliver of everything that's going on. And the ability to, to synthesize it and get a bigger picture is really, uh, I think, very challenging. And, 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 and part of what you go into is the advent of new tools, uh, that have also transformed our understanding of uh, 
of medicine and made it put it more in that scientific cast. Oh well, um, if you're referring to uh, uh, you know CAT scans, MRIs, uh, a lot right. of technical advances that have been fantastic in terms of being able to see the body. Uh, that's very important. Uh, and again, that's we're now entering a new age here, which which is which is going to now be the age of the large language model. AIs. Uh, oh, that's, yeah. going <laughs> that's going to transform things again. Uh, and at some point, if you want, we can talk about how, how maybe that how that's going to be good and bad. Yeah, yeah. I'm very interested in, in that topic as well. So I look forward to that. So um, Talk about the science of medicine versus the art of a bit more, because your book is really about the art of medicine. Okay, yeah, well, the science in medicine is can be equated with evidence-based medicine. Uh, and that, and that, that terminology was actually not coined until the end of the 20th century. Uh, and so it's been a relatively short period of time that that has taken over. Yeah. And what, it, and what evidence-based medicine says is we got these little different chunks that we're doing in a very specific manner. And the most specific manner in which that done is called uh, uh, randomized controlled trials, which I'm sure you're well familiar with. Uh, uh, and, but it's a very limited but what it says is very limited. It virtually only applies to the study itself because it's so rigorous. And then what you have is you have interpretation of that. And you go then from what's the objective to the subjective. Uh, and what I maintain is, is that no matter how objective you think evidence-based medicine is, it's it, practice, there's a lot of subjectivity with it. And if we accept that, we then maybe are more open to the idea that we should also be considering our own subjectivity and humanity as an important part of the healing process, which as we talked before was throughout history was very important, but it's becoming less and less important. If you're considered a good doctor, sometimes you're purely considered a good doctor because you follow all the guidelines. In terms that, of the insurance companies and all that's <laughs> the insurance companies yeah. uh, and, and it becomes a societal issue too. Yeah. Right. I mean, and then you have these mega institutions that are based on the idea of promoting uh, evidence-based medicine, not only through pharmacology, pharmacology uh, institutions and pharmaceuticals, but you have areas like the NIH, which is a magnificent body, and I don't want to deprecate it at all, but but it's but it's its whole modus operandi is to try to clear the air of what's evidence-based medicine and what is the most valuable uses of it. Yeah, yeah, evidence-based is certainly uh, has become a big topic in psychology as well and clinical psychology, which is my training background. Uh, in particular, 
And uh, but there are pluses and minuses to that, right? What are, what are the limitations of evidence based? It sounds good on paper, but exactly, exactly on paper, it's great. And there have been a lot of papers written. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know. So so it, it's it, it. I think it's a question of understanding what information you're getting. And part of the problem that happens is not just even the study itself, but the media presentation of it. Mm -hmm. The media, the media gets hold of it and can basically change a point of view in healthcare on an extraordinary level. Like one of the one of the big areas that a lot of people are familiar with, particularly women, is from the Women's Health Initiative. Uh, and estrogen use. And, and what? Estrogen. Estrogen use. Estrogens. Female estrogen, hormones. Estrogen, yeah. Okay, right. Female hormones. And, yeah. And, and, and it's enough to drive anyone crazy and drove a lot of women crazy. You know, should I be taking them or shouldn't I? There was decades that all the evidence-based medicine was building up saying yes, Take estrogens. Everyone should take. All women should take it. Part of it goes back to the observation uh, from the Framingham study that uh, women had less cardiovascular disease than men. But then, when women got to menopause, it started equalizing and saying, "What's the difference?" Well, probably hormones, estrogens. So then there was a big study that was done in the Women's Health Initiative looking at that very problem and they were expecting to find that estrogens would be protective against cardiovascular disease and the results of this very long study that was going on seven years was uh no it isn't yes it is <laughs> yeah yeah it said both and and when you started parsing it apart you can actually say there is benefits from it uh but but the media immediately glommed on to the idea that estrogens are not what they were thought to be and were not nuancing what was being said. And it threw, it, it threw out the whole idea of using estrogens at that time. Uh-huh. Good example. Uh, and it also brings to mind that uh, another sort of major limitation that we're coming to understand is that uh, a lot of these, uh, the tests, the double-blind studies and so on, they only go up to a certain age. I'm in an age that's beyond the age that they go up to. So it turns out that everything that gets prescribed to me uh, that I need to do and take, et cetera, has not been tested in, in a rigorous way in my, in my age group. Yes, well, yeah, right, right. You can talk about age group. You, you can talk about ethnic backgrounds. Uh, yeah. There, there is a, uh, uh, just to, clar uh, to talk about the point a little further, I don't know if you're familiar with WEIRD. It w rings a bell. W-E-I-R-D? Yes, yes. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. Yeah, there you that go. That represents the... Uh, the uh, the majority of the people who have been who have participated in, in evidence-based trials 
Right. And we're, we're just starting to be aware. Uh, the people who are outside that are calling our attention <laughs> to the fact that, hey, this doesn't, isn't based on us. Yes. Yes. And, and you, see, you see, when I get into nuancing it further is, even when it is, even when it looks like it's appropriate for that person in terms of saying, oh, I, I fit into that age group, um, a white male, it's a white male sort of study. There are so many other factors that can be involved that aren't looked at, that it could still not be important or the most important way for that individual to look at it. I would agree for a population, it would be, but eventually it's a doctor and a patient and they have to make a decision. And the studies are not actually talking about that individual. They're talking about a population and you have to decide how to stir that into the whole pot. Right, right, yeah. So we should probably mention at this point, that's this late in the game, that uh, actually your field for most of your professional life has been uh, that you're board certified endocrinologist for 34 years, and right. it had more of, and you were more of an academic practitioner, and then somehow. You switched. Talk to us about what shifted you then into becoming a more uh, generalized medical practitioner. Right. Well, uh, it it, uh, it was a major change in my life, which is uh, which was a which was traumatic, physically traumatic, where I uh, fell fell off a roof. Uh, the details of which I won't give you. Uh, it's horrified people when they've heard it. So yeah, but but I but I grabbed onto the uh, eave corrugated eave when I was falling off. It was only one uh, story, but I cut eight tendons in my hand, Ooh. and suddenly the things that I used to do to balance my life out at that point, which was tennis and playing piano, yeah, gone. Um, and, uh, uh, actually my hand never completely recovered. Eventually my shoulder wasn't good because of it. So physically I changed and, uh, uh, someone had brought up the idea of a men's, a men's group to join that they'd asked before if I was interested in. And I did, and they were supposedly going to do, uh, it was, uh, do meditation. It was a book by Robert Bly. Um, sure. And, uh, and. And they and they weren't really meditating, but there was meditations in there. So I decided I was going to learn how to meditate, uh, uh -huh. and, and that really changed my whole perspective on on life at that point. Wow! And at the meantime, it, so so that was that was a major shift in what became important in my life, but also the humanistic part became just a question of keep on practicing with patients. I just enjoyed practice. I enjoyed being with patients. I developed a lot of close relationships with patients. And I realized how important my interaction was with them to the point there, there were times where I would be with a patient and we would spend 15, 20 minutes. And at the end of it, I was saying, now how in the world am I going to bill for this? 
<laughs> right. Right, right, right. The patient left very satisfied, felt as though we really hadn't talked about things that were important to them in their life, but I had no idea what the right billing code was. Unfortunately, you have to lie. You have to fudge it a bit, right? Yes. That's, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. I would yeah. come up with something, but I just knew it was not, it did not actually relate to exactly what happened and the importance of what happened. Yeah, I relate to so much of what you've said down to the level of uh, I've been in a men's group for something like 32 years or 38 years. And um, one of the members of our men's group was a roofer and fell from the roof. And uh, he's shorter now than he was, <laughs> than he used to be, uh, yeah. so, you know, so... Yeah. And uh, and we also, you know, went through meditation and the, and uh, I have a background in humanistic psychology, and so I really uh, can relate to everything that you're saying here. Uh, so let's talk more about about the art of of uh, and, and you've already emphasized that you're not anti-science. Exactly. I'm very pro-science. Yeah, yeah, pro-science. So, as am I. I, I'm not anti-science either. Um, But it requires, uh, you know, talk about meditation. It's a fine balancing act, really, to hold multiple perspectives and multiple realities, uh, multiple versions of reality, right? That that is... I could not have said that better. That's the important <laughs> yeah. thing is to be able to to hold all of it. Uh, yeah. And also to when you're doing that is to realize that every experience is actually a new experience. Mm-hmm. And there's something you can learn from it. Yeah. And, and it's like Sherlock Holmes said that every time he approached a new case, it was with an absolutely blank mind. Mm-hmm. So in other words, to be able to really draw in all the possibilities of what's of what's there. And if you're just looking at the evidence-based part of it, you don't have a blank mind. Yeah, yeah. So in, in the course of this uh, transformation, you've looked into a lot of alternative medicine approaches. And I think you, uh, you have the impression that you found value in some. And yes. uh, and others, either not not so much or or worse. Oh oh well, as as is as is true in all of medicine, right? <laughs> right. I mean, there's uh, you know I I think it's an, it's a part of the armamentarium that should be there, uh, and uh, uh, and the problem is it's not a very good area like herbal medicines to look at it in terms of evidence-based medicine, where there is quite a bit of it, but is but if you're going to do it rigorously, it is very hard to prove it. Among other reasons is you have to use herbal preparations that are highly purified and regulated. And there's a whole page just to go through that when you're trying to put in a study on an herbal medicine to say that you've met all the standards there, uh-huh. uh, while the pharmaceutical industry has that beat. 
and they have the re, uh, the resources uh, to really make sure that they're that they're seen and that they can achieve that end. Uh, the the one of the big examples that I use in uh, in in, uh, in in herbal medicine uh, that relates to my field of endocrinology was the use of strontium. And strontium, uh, as many of you know, is is a mineral, and it's a very common mineral. But it is it it has benefits to the bone where it can help bone development, increasing, as well as prevent the destruction of bone in a way that's probably better than the pharmaceutical agents that's out there on a theoretic basis, for sure. Uh, and strontium was never used very much because they say, where's the evidence for it? Well, to do evidence for it, you have to do a big study. To do a big study, you got to have a lot of money and yeah. time. And so the big studies were actually done in Europe and they were excellent. And they were as good as the studies that were done by pharmaceutical agents with the usual agents, which are called bisphosphonates. Uh, and, and there were two excellent studies. And then in reviewing it, these studies a year later, they said, wait a minute, there looks as though there might have been an increased cardiovascular signal here, that there might be an increased risk of cardiovascular disease if you take it. Well, technically, because technically, that, that is just what's called a signal. It's not called, called proof because the study was not looking at that. You look at randomized processes in terms of whether equal numbers of heart problems on both sides, et cetera, et cetera, that wasn't being looked at in the study. But again, the media took this and said strontium can't be used because that causes heart disease. You can look at the pharmaceutical uh, uh, area and you will see the same type of problems that they had, but they were able to throw more resources at it. So the basic problem is resources. There aren't the resources to try to prove herbal uh, medicines as much as there is for the pharmaceuticals that are present from the pharma uh, pharmacology institutions. Yeah, so the, the uh, point that, <clears throat> that I think you're underscoring here is that um, the the uh, demands of uh, of the uh, insurance companies and and so on are so stringent that people can't afford to do the research uh, that would you know quotes prove uh, the efficacy right exactly uh, of their exactly. approach. Yeah. Now, uh, some of the things that I think you mentioned being favorably uh, uh, influenced by are are uh, yeah. uh, uh, EMD. Uh, no, wait a second. No, no. Well, well, I had well, there were some herbal ones I had personal experience with. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, I was in. Uh, I'm a. I'm a. Uh, a meditator, and I've I've done different 
I've gone to different uh, different sanghas and meetings, including with the Dalai Lama in India. Oh uh-huh, wow! And I was I was in I was in India in Dharamsala, and even before I got there, I was starting to feel sick. I'd had a lot of dental work done. Um, and when I got there, I was every day, I was having more and more difficult swallowing. Uh, and to the point where I was getting pretty concerned. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I have a hippie, I have a history of uh, uh, oral herpes, not genital, oral. And I thought maybe that was it. And I was going to start an antiviral. But I said that would take days. And that point, I'll be having a terrible time. Well, I went to the herbalist uh, that is associated with the Tibetan government in exile in Dharmasala, who I had met. And uh, she got me immediately in to see one of the local doctors in their clinic. And I was given a slew of herbal preparations and virtually within two hours of putting on a uh, salve on my uh, on my neck, the pain went away. Um, I within six or seven hours, I was suddenly able to eat a meal and had more sense of energy. Uh, and I know that the medicine I was taking antivirals just shorten the course. They don't really help alleviate the symptoms at that point so i became a believer there was something there right really (laughs) yeah personal experience yeah um so who's the target for this book who's your target audience yeah well the um what people have told me is uh that it should be anyone who's pre-med interesting in going into medicine or into healthcare, interns, residents, in order to get a real perspective on the whole medical field. Um, But I think anyone who is really interested in trying to understand healthcare for themselves, their interaction with, with doctors and how they can empower themselves in taking care of their health should have some benefit with it. Uh, the the one, one thing with this book is it's not exhaustive. It's more hopping around to different areas. Yeah. And as I like to say, it's, it's a kaleidoscope. Yeah. So there's I, all sorts of different areas and you keep on turning the kaleidoscope to see a different I- image. Yeah, I would say uh, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, I got that, that feeling a bit. And um, you know, one of the one of the things that you talked about that caught my eye was uh, you talk about rigor versus rigidity. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Say a bit about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. The um, the rigor is you look at evidence based medicine; it is very rigorous which means that it's very precise in the way it's put together. Uh, You have to have randomized people and you you have to determine how you're going to randomize them. There's computer programs for that. 
Um, every visit has to be very well thought out of and determined. Gathering information is done in a very particular way. Everything is very rigorous, very much to a letter, what's going on. So that's, that's good. That can lead to, unfortunately, to rigidity once the study is out there. You can say, here, we got the study. Now I know what this means. You're being rigid about it. You're saying, because you did that one study that you've now understand the whole field or the concept with it, uh -huh. and you don't. Uh -huh. uh, and and as, as you know, science never tells you what's something true. It only tells you what something is. Yeah, and it, and it can only talk in terms of probabilities as well, right? So we can't yes. we can't reach certainty. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, and here I can give you my my one parable that I've concocted or um, melange together from different sources uh, to try to uh, to try to discuss this point. And I call it the Ari, Ari Zen parable. And you have these two men walking down. I don't know why I used men, but anyway, two people walking down a path, not together. And there's two identical flowers on the side of the road. The first person to reach the two flowers is Ari. Ari is of Aristotelian logic. Uh, and he says, I am going to understand this flower. So what does he do? He picks the flower. He has, he has amazing abilities of analytic material, uh, uh, material around and machines that he can look at it. He dices it. He's, he, he puts it through spectroscopy. He puts it through enough tests to fill up a tome of books on different <laughs> properties and things that's there. Uh, one, one thing that is evident at the end of it is you're no longer as a flower. Right. All right. Then Zen comes along and sees the other flower and he says, I'm going to understand the flower. So he sits down on the on the path and looks at the flower and he starts feeling how the flower grew from a seed how the seed was in an earth and the, the moisture that was in the earth the different nutrients that were present there how how they worked together so that the so that the flower was gradually able to be formed that eventually sprouted through the earth then gets into the into the uh, air and the sun, the sunlight, and how that interacts with it, and then how he is interacting with the flower, and how uh, the sense of beauty that's there, the sense of nature that's present, and he spends hours there, and then he sits, stands up, and he walks away and says, "Now I understand the flower," and the question is. Who understands the flower better? Oh, I, I love that uh, Zen parable that you made up. It's a good one. 
Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so it's a kind. So I'm not saying that one is right or the other one's right, but I'm saying they both are needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe with this uh, parable we will close off. I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Um, any other point that you would like to make uh, before we go? Um, well, the only the only point is because uh, I'm asked this a lot is so what do you do with all this? How do you how do you maneuver through the medical system uh, and and how the medical system is uh, most people agree is broken in many ways uh, and how do how do physicians survive in this in this uh, era? And I think what it is, it's an internal process. Um, and for me, the internal process and what's made it very, uh, made it possible for me to go where I've gone and enjoy what I'm doing has to do with meditation. Um, and I'm not saying that everyone has to meditate, but everyone has to have, have different parts of their life that are very important outside of their business life and what they're doing. And meditation for me was very important because it allowed me to be open and present. And that's the important thing is I would like to just say, it's very important that someone be present with their patient and be open and have humility. Wonderful. That's a wonderful wrap up. Uh, Dr. Alan Sussman, thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. Once again, I feel so privileged to meet my recent guest, Alan Sussman, M.D. It was easy to establish good rapport with him because we share so many of the same values. Despite the fact that he lives in Seattle and me in the San Francisco Bay Area, we both ended the interview with the strong feeling that we would be good friends if we lived closer. The ostensible reason for our interview is his new book, Saving the Art of Medicine, Observations of a Practitioner, in which he argues that medicine should be more than just treatment of disease or broken body parts. Rather, physicians must respect complex interrelationships of mind, body, and spirit, seeking always to connect the part to the whole. Clearly, for me as a humanistic psychologist, this book is in my wheelhouse. As so often happens, his sense of doctoring was transformed by a personal tragedy. He had been trained and steeped in traditional objective science, having been an academic board-certified endocrinologist for 34 years and clinical assistant professor at the University of Washington. He was involved in hundreds of evidence-based studies and the development of groundbreaking technology for the treatment of diabetes. He was not in clinical practice until destiny stepped in and he fell off a roof. The accident messed him up physically so badly 
that he could no longer use the laboratory tools that had been his bread and butter for so long. He went into a deep depression, which eventually led him to join a men's group and begin a meditation practice. As a result of meditation, he began to see reality through a much broader lens. Yes, science is a valuable tool that can reveal some of the answers, but it's not the whole story. He's moved into clinical practice that includes elements of alternative medicine, such as herbal treatments. I strongly recommend his book, Saving the Art of Medicine. It will be of particular value to physicians, medical students, nurses, and all of us who are distressed by the perfunctory way in which corporate medicine treats us today. Dr. Dave is one of the most generous persons I know of. Every Thursday I get spoiled with a new interview which David has been working on all week and for which he asks nothing in return but that we contemplate what his work is worth for us. So I did. And I realized I was hooked. A good measure of how much you value something is your reaction to your imagined disappear. So I try to picture the day when shrink wrap radio doesn't exist anymore. And what I felt was sorrow, almost as if an old friend had passed away. So maybe you, like me, value the work of our dear old shrink more than you think. My response to that was a small donation. What's yours going to be? Thank you, Oscar, there in Stockholm. Thanks for your own generosity and for challenging others to follow your fine example. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks to Alan Sussman, MD, author of The Art of Medicine, for his fine book and for taking us through highlights of his own remarkable journey. Next week, my guest will be Peter H. Kim, Ph.D., who has spent two decades building a body of scientific knowledge around the topic of trust, a field that had previously been largely undeveloped. We'll be discussing his book, How Trust Works, The Science of How Relationships Are Built, Broken, and Repaired. Until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.